The Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab, episode 592 for Friday, February 12th, 2016. Greetings, folks, and welcome to the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Cab, the show where you send in your questions, your tips, your cool stuff found. We share them. And the goal is to learn. Now, it was Sunday last time we did this show. Now it's Friday, so we haven't had a full week. So we're going to lower lower the bar. No, we're not. We never lower the bar here. See, that was a trick question. I wanted to see if you would catch me. It's always at least three new things each and every time we get together. And today is no different. Sponsors for this episode include Gazelle at Gazelle.com, where you can sell off all your old electronics. And you can even buy some. Uh, refurbished ones too. Betterment at betterment.com, B-E-T-T-E-R-M-E-N-T.com slash M-G-G. Automated online investing made really, really easy. We'll talk about that shortly. Squarespace at squarespace.com slash M-G-G. We're coupon code 10. We're coupon code 10? No. We're coupon code M-G-G. Saves you 10%. And carbon copy cloner from bombic.com slash M-G-G. And, uh, that link saves you 10% too. Here in Durham, New Hampshire, I'm Dave Hamilton. And here in soon to be very chilly, almost dangerously so, fearful Connecticut, this is John F. Braun. Yeah, it's cold here, man. It was like, um, I, I, didn't, I didn't get up overly early today. I think it was about uh, 8 o'clock when I got up and it was 8 degrees outside, something like that. It's not, uh, it's not good. And I was in Boston last night. I went to check out the new... Uh, Sonos moved their head, their East Coast office from Cambridge to Boston. Gorgeous office, by the way, the new one. There's a living wall in there. They're crazy. Um, but walking around Boston last night, man, the wind was like whew, howling. Oh, it's not good. Not well, good. it's going to get worse. And actually, a mini quick tip here is something that, that I don't think I've spoken about, Dave. So I'm using a new weather app here called Weatherman Light. Okay. I was using something before, but support for it had kind of disappeared. So uh, this one I kind of like, and it uh, gives you, uh, lets you access alerts and stuff like that. And we have a, uh, and again, I'm, I'm serious here. Uh, they say dangerously cold wind chills, like in the negative, <laughs> negative 20 or negative 30. No, it's not funny. It's actually, it's like stay inside, man. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think, I think there's something like the that. That's inside. And, and you know, they got all sorts of tips locally. Uh, you know, don't, you know, run a, a heater, a, a, you know, combustion heater indoors, duh. But some people don't know that. Sure. And all sorts of things. But uh, yeah, it's going to, no, again, I, I blame Canada. I, I think it's coming from Canada. So. All right. Well, um, sure. I don't think it's the Canadians sending it to us, though, John. <laughs> Not intentionally, no. Okay. <laughs> um. Yeah, you, you know, it's interesting. We we haven't talked about weather apps in a long time, and it's actually something that those of us that live here in in the Northeast, uh, I mean, like, when you live anywhere, you you need a weather app. But I always feel like the ones that get a lot of popularity out there are apps for that, that seem to cater toward the West Coast people, or not West Coast people, but people that live in climates where the weather is relatively 
consistent. Um, and, and some of those apps are really good. Like dark sky certainly fits that bill, but it's handy to know that it's about to start raining or it's about to start snowing, right? Those very like hyper local weather things and, and dark sky is probably the, certainly, um, for me is the best of those. But in terms of getting a forecast for, you know, four or five days out, those kinds of apps, that, that app in particular, not so good. And there's, there's lots of them that are just sort of, here's what it's doing now. Here's what it's going to do soon. But like, here's what it's going to do on Thursday. Those apps don't give you, give me the, the kind of the, the, the view that I would want, the vision that I would want. Um, so in addition to using dark sky, which I love, uh, I also use an app these days called storm, which is from weather underground and man, I love it. Uh, I think it's free. In fact, I, I'm, I'm certain it's free. And then, uh, you can, you can pay to remove ads and, and get some other features and stuff, but it's got a great radar view that really shows kind of that, you know, I don't need 3d globe radar. In fact, that's distracting. I just need radar that shows me basically from the great lakes over because that's where big storms come from. And, uh, man, it shows me hourly daily. I'll, we'll put a link in the show notes of course, but, uh, storm is outstanding. And in, in my opinion, so I highly recommend it. In fact, it'll even show you all the local weather stations and you can see mine because my net atmo thing I, I publish. So you can see the, the local temperature here too. So, it's fun. I like weather apps. I mean, you know, for for what they need to be. Little impromptu segment. I like that, John. Yep, and I'll link to mine. So I put okay. a link. Uh, it's in the app store. And yeah. uh, so far, I'm uh, pretty uh, pretty happy with it. And the price is right. And, yeah. Uh, I believe they have a premium version, but uh, so so far. Yep. The, uh, the freebie. Uh, yeah, the freebie does it for you. What I need to know. Yeah. It, 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 I, I do, I, I would recommend to add to that something like dark sky where you can get like that instant notification that, yep, it's going to rain in 10 minutes or, or whatever that, that stuff is super handy and it's really accurate. It's, it's scarily accurate. It's pretty cool. It's using, I think it's dark sky, right? They were the ones that said that they're using barometric pressure of iPhones, uh, to help like predict the weather. So like everybody around you that has an iPhone is, is also contributing to this uh, kind of hive mind of things, which is brilliant. I love it. All right. Well, it's time to, uh, we have a couple of tips from, uh, from relatively recent shows. So we'll start with Eric's tip in, uh, in show five eighty nine. we were talking about downloading, um, apps and and where you could get apps from and eric says uh, it seems that dave indicated that it was still possible to back up app binaries to itunes when you plug in an ios device even if they were thinned while i haven't tested this recently i did a lot of it right after ios 9 was released and the process of backing up and using the transfer purchases option no longer did anything with app binaries it would still transfer things like music videos podcasts audiobooks and basically everything else from the itunes store but not apps the only way to back up apps to your computer these days is to download them manually from the itunes store on your computer and then turn on the option for automatic downloads so that any new purchases will get downloaded automatically uh and you're totally right eric i did say that transfer purchases was it but you're right it has you have to download them uh but 
they make it really easy to do. The only thing that's not overly easy, and it depends on how many apps you have, is downloading updates to them. Uh, I forget to do this from time to time. And for whatever reason, even though I have iTunes set to, you know, kind of pull everything down, it doesn't pull down app updates. I have to do that manually. And uh, you can tell it to update all. But if you have more than, and I know this is going to sound like a lot, but I download a lot of apps. I think if you have more than a hundred and it's somewhere between a hundred and 200 updates is the maximum that it will queue up at once. And then when they finish, you've got to go back and tell it update all again, even though you've already told it update all, and you got to do that until it like flushes the queue. So it's update some, but masquerading is update all. Thank you, Eric, for that though. That was, uh, I always like to make sure we get things right for you folks. I'll say hi to everybody in the chat room at macgeekab.com slash stream because uh, they are the folks, and, and you are some of they, of course, uh, who help make sure that we don't have to wait two episodes to issue a correction or a clarification. They are right on top of it, listening while we're recording. And as you've heard many times, they chime right up and tell us, to, oh, hey, don't forget this, or hey, you got this wrong, or whatever that is. And it's super, super helpful. And I appreciate everybody that does that because it really helps. Uh, Helps the whole show. So it's good stuff. Anything on that, John, before we move on to uh, JD's tip from last show? Move on. Moving on. Uh, JD says uh, you guys went down the raid enclosure path via a semi semi logical conclusion uh, when a user was asking about a solution for some bare SATA drives. However, I was thinking that the OWC Voyager product where the user can just drop in a raw SATA drive as needed to read and write data would be a great option. And you're totally right. Uh, the OWC Voyager is a killer, killer product. Um, really cool. Like, like you said, you just kind of drop, drop stuff in and uh, you can get a USB 3 version of it for 30 bucks and it makes it life super easy. You just, literally drop the disc in it mounts you do whatever you want you eject it and it's it's like an external case without needing an external case it it um it, you know you just drop the disc in it uses gravity to, to hold the disc in and and uh it's awesome it, it really is a great thing to have if you've ever got need for it again for 30 bucks you know you're not going to go wrong so fun stuff john do you have a voyager i always forget no i lean towards and I, I i do believe he mentioned this in in his uh in his note but odbc also has these very inexpensive and and the latest ones that i got because now i have usb3 is they had these uh especially for two and a half inch drives the smaller drives that are typically in your portable um or actually a lot of machines now but but i i love those things um because i just hate having a drive sitting around doing nothing um you're totally right. Yeah. And he did mention those and I, I skipped it, but shouldn't have. This is the um, Toshiba Canvio USB three hard drive enclosure. Uh, it's open box, original drive removed, but five bucks is what it costs. And you've got this external USB three hard drive enclosure for all three and a half inch, not even the laptop drives, full size drives fit right in this thing. It's not a bad well, he deal. He mentions those. The, the the one I'm specifically talking about, the, I believe they call it the OWC Express. Okay. Uh, portable USB 3 enclosure. Um, 
And they typically go, I'm, I'm looking right now, I just, uh, you know, thank you, Google, um, despite the, their evilness in many areas. <laughs> just kidding. But uh, no, I just searched. And the, the, you can get this enclosure for a two and a half inch drive, uh, USB 3 for about 20 bucks. So rather than taking your old drives and just having them sitting in a pile, I mean, hey, throw them in these. And, you know, I have both the old USB 2 ones, but, you know, if you got USB 3, why the heck not? I, I actually used to look and see if they have a, a Thunderbolt version, uh, though that I think would tend to knock the price a little bit above $20. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But, uh, but that's another option. Actually, I have, you know, I have various drives. I mean, actually, the drive I have connected to my Mac Mini here is in one of those enclosures. Oh, nice. And I use it for my CCC backup. It's, sure. it's an older drive. It's one that, you know, I really didn't know what the heck to do with it, but I use it for a daily, uh, a daily CCC backup, and, and it, it, it does the job. Very cool. Yeah. Yeah, there's lots of options. I, for, I always forget about those $5 cases there that, uh, that OWC has. That's good stuff. Thank you. Well, I didn't know they had five dollars. I mean, that's, that's what I'm saying. Is, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah. That's the thing. They um, they harvest the 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 big you know whatever five terabyte Hitachi discs out of them, and uh, and they're just in these plastic snap together cases. And uh, you know, he says he's had pretty good results. He said a uh, a Western Digital green two terabyte disc would not reliably spin up in that enclosure. JD says, but uh, but otherwise he's had good luck with it. So it's good stuff, man. Uh, you know what, John, you, uh, you mentioned them. So why don't we talk about our first set of sponsors here? Is that okay? Uh, 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 yeah, yeah, of course. (laughs) All right. Our first sponsor today creates a tool that I use every day. That's Bombix software with carbon copy cloner. But here's the thing. Actually, I lied a little bit. I don't use it every day. It's used for me every day, but I don't actually have to launch it. And that's because Carbon Copy Cloner is able to auto launch itself and back up your Mac on a schedule that you define. I get an email if there's a problem. Actually, I also get an email if it succeeds because I like that. It's peace of mind. It's a reminder that things happen. If, I, if you only get an email when it fails, well, what happens if the mechanism to send the email fails? What happens if the app doesn't launch because something's wrong with my Mac? Carbon Copy Cloner gives you the option to get emails about any completion, whether it's successful or not. So every day I get an email. Actually, I get two emails because here's one of the things. I have Carbon Copy Cloner set up to clone my main hard drive. That makes an actual clone of the drive. It's bootable. It doesn't require any special software on another computer to boot it. I can take that clone, plug it into any Mac, and it will boot. But then there's other things I want to back up. I want my iTunes library to be backed up across the network to my disk station and a couple of other things. So I've got several backup jobs. And here's the cool thing. I only have to schedule the first one because at the end of the first one, I tell it, go run this next job. So it's running them in series, not in parallel. Running backup jobs in parallel can really grind your Mac to a halt and actually make them all very inefficient if it's trying to scour your drive for different things simultaneously. So Carbon Copy Cloner allows you to chain them together. So I chain up a couple of jobs, then I get a couple of emails. Works brilliantly. You can save 10% on Carbon Copy Cloner. You got to check it out. 
bombic.com. That's B-O-M-B-I-C-H.com slash M-G-G. Coupon code MGG10OFF. That's MGG10OFF. That'll save you 10%. Our thanks to Bombic and Carbon Copy Cloner for sponsoring this episode. We all have different needs, at least in terms of what it is we want to put out there for others to find. It might just be an idea. It might be some writing. It might be some pictures. Squarespace is here to cater to all of those needs. You want just a single page website for if you just have an idea or just something to put out there. Squarespace calls these their cover pages. Single page, really, really quick. You can put something up there and you can make it as gorgeous as you want. In fact, it kind of starts out gorgeous already because Squarespace has all these great templates that are tailored to what you want to do. If you want to sell something, you want an online storefront and also kind of a back-end business manager. That's what Squarespace Commerce is about. You can build all kinds of things. I, and I've mentioned this before. I built an entire storefront, start to finish, selling tickets to an event in an hour. That included signing up for their partnership with a merchant provider to take credit cards. All of it. The website, every, we were live in an hour. They make it super easy again because they've got these templates. Or if you just want kind of what I would call a regular website, maybe a blog, that's what Squarespace websites are for. Again, beautiful templates to start with. And then you just sort of mold and iterate from there. But it makes it so easy and it looks great. And the prices are awesome. It just starts at just eight bucks a month. If you sign up for a year, you get a free domain registered. And why would you not sign up for a year? If you're going to bother to put a website online, you're not going to change where you're putting it every month. Just pick Squarespace, stick with it for a year, and then eight bucks a month and you save 10%. You go to squarespace.com slash MGG to start. That gets you two weeks for free. And then when it's time to buy, remember, MGG saves you 10%. So you got to check this out. I look forward to seeing what you've built on Squarespace. Let us know. We'll talk about it as we have uh, in future shows. Our thanks to Squarespace for sponsoring this episode. And with that, let's go to Jeff. Jeff, uh, he might be a little bit early on this question, but he says, uh, I'm looking for the most efficient and effective way to do some spring cleaning on my iTunes music library. After years of adding music to my library, it has grown to have many songs I no longer listen to or even care to have. I realize that cleaning out the cruft is going to be a tedious task and may take some time, so I'm looking for a recommended method to do so. I've considered simply browsing my library and deleting what I don't want. Although effective, I don't think it would be very efficient. I tend to agree with you, Jeff. Uh, my second and probably better option would be to back up my current library, create a new iTunes library, and put back the music and media that I want to keep this seems to meet both of my goals of being efficient and effective, but I'm not sure how to go about this. I'm an iTunes Match and Apple Music subscriber. A local copy of all of my music and media is stored on my Mac, which I consider to be my master library. I'm not sure how to easily start fresh with iTunes and iTunes Match, or if there is another method you could recommend. How would you go about this? All right. Um, Good question, because it's, there's not a simple answer. So, but let's go through some of the answers, because some of them might be simple. 
keeping your library as it is, you could use smart playlists and create a smart playlist that say is, you know, files that haven't been the last date played is more than whatever, you know, 24 months ago or something, something like that, whatever time period you want to choose. And then you can start to remove that stuff. If, if you have a smart playlist, uh, you can go in or really any playlist, you can go into iTunes. If you, if you do, uh, I think it's command option, delete in iTunes, and that will offer to have you remove it from your library as opposed to just from the playlist. And, uh, and we'll also ask you if you want to remove it from iCloud at the same time. So that could work if you just want to prune some things you haven't played in a while. Like, and it sounds like you're already doing this, Jeff, but I would recommend shooting a backup of your music library before you mess with any of this, the, the contents and the library file, just to make sure, you know, right. Cause you don't want to lose stuff. You might decide that you do like that old crazy, you know, Britney Spears album down the road. Who knows? It might become a classic, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, iTunes like uh, photos and, and other Apple media apps offers the ability to have multiple libraries going. You can't have the multiple libraries open simultaneously, but you can have them exist on your disk simultaneously. So what you could do is leave your existing library exactly where it is and all by itself and then create a new one. And you do this by holding down the option key. When you launch iTunes, it will allow you to pick a different library. That's how you would switch between them or create a new one. And that's what you would do in the kind of in the first case or in the first place. Uh, so that that's an option to um, Apple Music. So you have an Apple Music subscription uh, with Apple Music. This starts to get very interesting, right? Because now you've got access to everything they have and every, everything that you have had. Uh, if you start a new library and you log into your Apple music account, it's going to pull down everything that exists in your old library. Well, it's not going to download it, uh, but it is going to list it all for you. So what you would have to do is, and this is by the way, how you remove things from your Apple music library that you don't necessarily want to delete from your, you know, from your main hard drive or whatever, is you create a new iTunes library, which you can do on the same computer with the option key or on a different computer or even a different user account. But in your case, you would do it option key and then log into Apple music and have it sync down the list of everything that you have. It's going to show that everything exists in the cloud and you could choose to download the songs that you want to download. Uh, but from here you can highlight songs and tell it to delete them from the cloud and that will remove them from the cloud. This is also the way that if you have a file that's not up, like if you uploaded something to Apple music and it didn't match it right or whatever, and you want it to upload again, this is how you do that. You, you go into another computer that's logged into the same Apple music library and delete from there. And then it'll, you can trigger it to, to reupload. So, um, but you would have to do that. Otherwise you're going to, you know, create a new library and it's just going to have everything listed that, that came from your old one because that's what Apple music does. Um, and iTunes match, uh, as well. We'll do similar things. So you gotta, you gotta remove it from the cloud, whichever cloud of apples that is. So I, you know, it depends on how crazy you want to go with your spring, spring cleaning. I, I feel like the smart playlist thing might be the simplest option for you because you know, that way you're not messing with your existing playlists or anything, but maybe that's what you want to get rid of. So any thoughts on this, John? 
I do have one that's kind of related. So one thing I was trying to find, there are a number of apps that will detect and remove um, redundant information. And I'm going to try to find it, and maybe we'll bring it up in a future show here. But I did find, Dave, and this is, if you're talking about house cleaning, your iTunes library, there's a dandy article from, you guessed it, our friends at Apple, and it's called Find and Remove Duplicate Items in Your iTunes Library. So if you're going to be going through the effort, though I understand the, 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 the focus of this is, is a little different. Sure. If you're going to be digging through your library, Apple has some tips as to how you can get rid of duplicates because duplicates just ruin your day. Sure. Take up space and can potentially confuse um, Apple's other services if you have more than one version of a song in your iTunes library. Um, as I think you suggested. So Makes sense, uh, yeah. So we got that article. I'll, uh, let's see, up. Oh, you already linked to it, didn't you? I, I built the show notes while you're talking, man. Yep. Look at you. It's all, all good. Right. Brian, Brian Monroe and I got you covered, so. So I won't paste it because you already did, but. That's um, right. But I like it that they do that because it, it you know, it should, it shouldn't let you do this, but sometimes it does, so, uh, and then I got to find, because there are a lot of, uh, there are several apps that will go through your various libraries and find duplicates or redundant information and try to clean it out for you, which we all want. Yep. Um, well, there was, there was one in my up. head. There was one in my head. Uh, was it TuneUp? Well, they were, yeah, they, they did this. Um, they've kind of gone up and down in terms of whether or not they're in business anymore. I think they might be back in business. They're called TuneUp Relaunch now at TuneUpMedia.com. So I'll put a link to that in the show notes, but bear in mind, things have been a little crazy there. So. Maybe that was the one, because I, I I certainly remember an app that said, hey, you know, if you got dupes, uh, was it iDupe? I don't think it was iDupe. It was D-du- something else. D-du- iTunes deduper or something. I feel like there was that, no. too. But it was, uh, I'll dig through my archives, and uh, okay. we'll bring it up in a future show. But there, there are many apps, because this is a problem that, uh, unfortunately, Apple apps don't necessarily deal with elegantly and yep. they're like well i think you know what you're doing so yeah you want to add this again sure <laughs> whether yep. it's photos or music or something sometimes they don't catch it or uh, and the thing is maybe they don't catch it because you know i mean if, if all the parameters are not exactly the same so say you ripped something uh versus something that was bought and maybe the timestamp is a second off then it'll be like well that's not the same is it mm. <laughs> And I guess they're erring on the side of caution that they sure. don't want to not add something if they think it's it's unique. Yep. And I, I can understand that. Yeah, absolutely. Right? It could be a live version versus a studio version or something like that. So there's there's um Alex in the chat room suggests uh that the menu you mentioned where you can have iTunes uh you go to view and say show duplicate items. If you hold down the option key, it changes to view show exact duplicate items, which can help Ooh. with this. It right, it speaks to exactly what you're talking about here, John. And then um also from the chat room, Mac Tech Freak there suggests uh using smart playlists, but limiting the songs that you want to prune out by genre, which he says he did because there was just some stuff he wasn't going to listen to anymore. And so if you have your library organized well by genre, that can really help to kind of, you know, push stuff out. So thanks guys. Good stuff. All right. Anything more on this one, John, before we move on? No, we're good again. I, I, I'm going to make a note to myself to do some research. Okay, cool. So we have, uh, we have two from 
two different listeners, John. So we will address uh, the first John first, I suppose. Uh, John writes, after installing my one terabyte SSD in my 2010, 27-inch iMac, every now and again, I will be trying to delete a file from the desktop and get a file not found error negative 43. After I reboot, I am able to delete the file. I leave my Mac on all the time and as, because it's my media hub for iTunes and Plex. Again, this happens infrequently, like every month or so. Any thoughts? Um, that's weird. Uh, it's possible you have some app running that's trying to index things. Like if you're running, I don't know, Transporter. And I haven't seen this error specifically from Transporter. But, you know, if you're running something that... Uh, is is indexing that stuff uh, who knows it could be that but anytime weird things like this happen especially given that a reboot sort of just magically fixes it that tells me that you might have some file system corruption and that it's worth doing a file system repair which you can either do in recovery mode you got to boot up in uh in recovery mode i don't recommend doing file system repair on a on your boot disk with it up and running you can but it's really slow and not fun. So it's just simpler to boot again into either recovery mode where you can do it in the graphical interface with disk utility. Or if you boot to single user mode, there's a little command for uh, FSCK and you type the whole thing in and it's written right there for you. That will scan the drive as well. So uh, I would do that. And, and you know, it, it file system corruption is one of those things that, symptoms tend to indicate that it's gotten worse, right? Most of the time with file system corruption, you won't have any symptoms. So it's good to do. I, I like to say once every three months, realistically on my machines, I probably remember to do it once every six, but, uh, but certainly as soon as you see a symptom like this, let that be a healthy reminder to go and, and just do it and rule it out and then start looking for other things that, that it might be. So thoughts on that, John? My one thought, though in this case the error was indicated, um, here's a quick tip. I'm going to throw one in. That's what we do. Plan on it. <laughs> Say you get a Mac error, and it's a weird number. And number one, I have to shake my fist at any software developer, because I never did this as a software developer. Of but any not. software developer that uses a numeric error code... Um, we should take you to a room and, and deal with you appropriately. And that there's no reason for that. Use plain English. Now, the thing is, how can you get a plain English explanation of what uh, error means, Dave? And I kind of already told you, but I'll tell you again. So if you go to the terminal and you type the word Mac error space and then the error number. So in this case, for example, even though it was given in the error message, a lot of times it's not. So if you get a numeric error message, one way to figure out what the heck is going on is to type Mac error space and the error number. So in this case, I type Mac error space negative 43 and it says file not found, which is what we're told, but that's not always going to happen. Right. A lot of times you'll get this mysterious number and this is a program, as far as I can tell, that's built into Mac OS 10 to help you with these sort of things. So I know why a software developer might assign an error to a number uh, as opposed to plain English as you know there's there's no reason as you so eloquently put it and it's because it's possible that people using your software don't speak plain English that right they might speak a different language 
So if you're going, but you need to take it to the next step, right? And 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 you need to build language files for your software that include right. not the just software. the localizer yeah. stuff, but you've got to build your errors into your localizer files so that when somebody's running and and they're you know somebody that speaks say Mandarin, you, the error is then of oh, forty three. Okay, we do a lookup. Here you go. Boom. Now you're done. So, uh, but yeah, you know. It's good. And I got cheers from the chat room here saying, oh, another terminal command that I didn't know about. So yeah. You're welcome, guys. But uh, but that's one. You know, uh, okay, I'll grudgingly agree with you is that numbers are a language that is pretty much universal. So negative 43 is negative 43 no matter what language you speak. And, and I think negative. Assuming, assuming that you count in base 10. <laughs> oh, that's true. Yeah, that's right. right. We're, we're at another. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There could but, be people that are using a non. Uh, but is negative forty three file not found? I mean that that feels universal to me. But well, it might if you type just, Mac error. If you type Mac error negative forty three, it returns file not found. No, it I know. Says, but but what I'm saying, John, is 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 it universal? Because I I seem to remember on the Apple II that file not found also threw a negative forty three error. The question is: Is it just universal Apple, <laughs> or is it? Negative 43 is negative 43. And actually, as a developer, where this all lies, so typically, so you have your software, and then you have what are called header files that that define variables, and they typically map a number to something. Yep. And if you're using the same header file, at least in the C language, it could be called something like error.h. It's entirely possible that the error.h file that was used in a prior version of an Apple operating system is used in the next one. And and this happens, I think, so So in Unix, I think, so any Unix-based um, operating system, like OS X, assuming that you use the same header files, the .h files, um, if you're a C programmer, um, it certainly could um, be the same. So so across Unices, or Unixes, I'll say Unices, that, that just sounds more correct to me, you could certainly have the same numerical error code across any version of Unix that, that makes uses sense. the same header file. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, same with like networking. So it's like, oh, I have a network error. It could be negative 43. I don't even know what that is now, but <laughs> yeah. So you're right. So, so, so numbers, yes, are standard across yeah. uh, cultures and languages and, and possibly platforms. So I get that. But it's still, to me, is kind of sloppy or lazy that you don't include an explanation in the language of the person that is viewing it, which is entirely possible to know. Yeah. I mean, almost any OS says, Hey, I'm speaking American right. English or UK English or, or whatever language it is. And you should be able to customize it though. It takes work and it takes time. It, it takes you may not have that time. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. You want to, uh, you want to take us to the next John in line, John, Yes, because it's John, I'm going to give him preferential treatment. Here. That's right. No, I'm not. <laughs> We're going to... <laughs> but I like John's question, not only because his name is John, but because I think this is a good general discussion. Because I think our friend John here is pushing the envelope, not intentionally, but he's just doing... He's doing what he's doing. Yeah. He, he's got the toys. He's got the gadgets. And oh my gosh, so... I'll try to rip through what he has here because um, his setup is pretty darn impressive. Um, I think he has more toys than you and I combined or perhaps not, Dave. Maybe. Um, so he says, um, hello, gentlemen. 
perhaps. Um, I really enjoyed the podcast in general, but your last podcast was especially relevant to me. During that podcast, you spent a lot of time on routers, Wi-Fi networks, and so on. Well, my house network has needs and lots of them. So here's his setup, and I'll try to rip through this quickly. I don't think you need to list everything. Just, just, just summarize. What I he's will. Got. I will list. Well, I'm going to list what I think is important. Yeah. So the important parts I think are the routers or base stations here. So he has an Apple Time capsule 802.11 AC. He has an Airport Extreme 802.11 N first generation. Okay. Let's uh, let's remember that because I think that's a problem. And then he goes through. He has some Philips Hue, Belkin, Wemo. Um, so he has a number of home security devices. Really, a lot devices. of home automation devices. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, some Apple TV, a water system, a garage door. So he's got a lot of home, or you could call it Internet of Things, perhaps. Uh, that, that's kind of an ambiguous term, but um, there's you know, probably some Macs, there's probably twenty five things listed here. Yeah, yeah. So he's got a good number, even a Dell and a, a, a Wi-Fi printer. So he says, I'm into the IoT arena. IoT being, of course, Internet of Things, which is connecting your things to a network, uh, wired or wireless or otherwise. I'm trying to make everything as HomeKit compliant as possible, but in doing so, my network isn't responding very well. Basically, there are many times when it just seems to shut down, requiring a reset of the time capsule router to get things going again. Um, I don't think it's very important that he has Comcast cable for internet and a cable modem. That that's certainly part of it. Um, maybe we can stop there. Do, do you I think so. Stop there. Do I, you, do I you, agree. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So the thing. Next is question. I, I, oh no! Never mind. <laughs> no, I thought we were I, stopping I say, right here. I would say in this case. So I'm going to toss out a couple of things, and then I, I knew I would hand it off to you. But I, I think what I have to suggest is relevant and that I would like your refinements, Dave. Sure. But the thing is, it's, it's clear to me that John has a lot of devices. And when you have a lot of devices on any sort of network, that creates an opportunity for chaos or, or for things fighting with each other. Um, but here's what I offered. So the first thing that, that jumped out at me is that he has an Airport Extreme 802.11n first generation as an extender. Now, we discussed this in a past episode, but in my humble opinion, the Airport Express or Airport Extreme 802.11n sucks as a networking device. Uh, I don't the care what you the say. The first gen looked, stuff, sure. Yes. Yeah. Um, in that I looked up, and, and that's a two, that, that's actually Apple, uh, if you use our friend Mac Tracker, which is a wonderful piece of software, this is actually an obsolete device. It was, it was Apple's first cut in an 802.11n device. Okay, you know, it, 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 and I would say it kind of sucked. Because I had one too. It was the time capsule version, but the network performance sucked. Yeah. So and it was it was single radio that could either be two point four or five gigahertz, but not simultaneously. So so that personally jumped out at me, Dave. So if anything, I would take that device and replace it with anything. <laughs> well, you know, one thing to do is to simply turn it off. Um, because okay. I'm not convinced. Well, it depends on how he's, he says he's using it as an extender. What the question we don't have an answer to at the moment, uh, is whether the extender is a Wi-Fi repeater, right? That's one way of extending it, right? Taking the Wi-Fi signal and then repeating right. it. 
And then the other way is if it's acting as an access point that's bridged via Ethernet back to the to the main right. one. If it's bridged via Ethernet, it, it it again, like you said, it's not the strongest networking device. It's certainly not the strongest Wi-Fi device. But bridging via Ethernet, it's probably not going to take your network down. Whereas in Wi-Fi repeater mode, that device especially, huh, you know, right. I don't know. Yeah, right. And you mirrored what I, what I suggested to him. So the thing is, number one wireless extensions in general are not a great thing. It's like, to me, the least desirable option to extend your wireless network via another wireless access point because you're not going to get the performance. It's going to create all, all sorts of chatter. You're, you're definitely not going to get the same throughput. Um, so I said, so my one suggestion would be to take that device, if you feel it's necessary, replace it with anything else that, that is of higher capability or higher performance and like you suggested, Dave, um, wireless extension is the least desirable option. At the very least, extend it via Ethernet. And whether that's plugging it into the main base station or perhaps getting a gigabit switch um, yep. would be my one suggestion. The other would be, although the airport, if you look at the specs, they say, I can handle up to 50 devices uh, yeah, I, I guess you can technically <laughs> and that they can all connect to you. But uh, my suggestion would be looking at this list of devices, Dave, a lot of these devices that he's mentioning, I am almost certain do not adhere to the latest, greatest 802.11ac standard. The thing is when you start mixing, again, in theory, you can do this. You can mix 802.11b, 802.11g, 802n, 802ac, the, the, the access point will talk to all of them, but when you start creating this, uh, what I'll call chaos, things are going to start breaking down. Yep. Uh, so my, my suggestion would be as follows. If you have a lot of these devices that are not of the latest standard, and I suspect a lot of them are. Yeah, especially a lot of for the, example, home, the home automation stuff. Yeah, is I suspect a, a lot of them G. are not AC or N. They may be G. Yeah. You may want to isolate those devices onto a separate access point. Again, maybe connected with a uh, via a switch or or a wired connection. So so take all the all the, the all the guys that potentially can disrupt your your fast network, your AC or N network, and and isolate them to a separate either separate radio or a separate a totally separate access point. Yeah, and that's. Pretty much what I got on this. Actually, the third thing that I thought of is you may want to get something like NetSpot, which is a piece of software that we love. I've used in the past. I believe you've used as well, Dave. This is a piece of software that does what, what is called a site survey. This helps you visualize your coverage with your network setup. So once you do tune your network or maybe uh, segment it, like I suggested, get something like NetSpot and get it so that you can actually see your coverage. Uh, and maybe tweak it. So that's what I have to offer. But I'm I'm dying to know what you have to offer, Dave, because I'm sure I haven't covered it all. I've, I think I've covered the major points, but it, no, he's got I, a lot of stuff. I I yeah, he has a lot of stuff. I mean, the odd part is, you know, we we take these emails. Well, for the most part, we take them at face value. Sometimes people misrepresent things, but but it sounds like in this one, probably not. That it's the time capsule that's basically going unresponsive and and we sort of dismissed the comcast cable as part of it because we, it really feels like this issue is part of the house um and not beyond it but 
you know, I would, I would love to know a little more about why we believe it's the time capsule that's non-responsive. Although if rebooting the time capsule fixes everything, then that's certainly, you know, a, 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 uh, a, a very good indicator that that's correct. But I, I wonder, does it mean that things can't connect wirelessly to the time capsule or is it that things are connecting fine, but not getting out to the internet? Because if it's not getting out to the internet, then you may, you may have no problems in your home network and it might really be an issue with your cable modem or, you know, Comcast and your router's losing a connection to it. And it's got to resync with that. I just wanted to throw that out there because it, you know, the troubleshooting process, the worst thing any of us can do in it is to, you know, put on blinders and narrow down before we've ruled out the things that we're presuming are not involved. Uh, but let's go with that presumption for now. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you, you know, and, and we talked about this, this first generation extreme. I, I have one of those like you in the form of a time capsule, John, the first gen time capsule. Well, and I it's terrible. Yeah, it's terrible. <laughs> it's I actually, awful. I use it. The drive in it is still good. I replaced the power supply and the power supply and the drive a number of years ago. Um, and I still use it as a destination for time machine, but, but the radio is off. It doesn't do anything. It's just connected via ethernet. It's got a switch on the back. Uh, that's handy, but, uh, there's no radio as far as I'm concerned. It just sits on a desk and it, it's got a drive in it and I can, you know, blast data at it for, for time machine, which is fine. Uh, so yeah, that turn that off. I, I don't think it's doing you any good. Uh, but, uh, and then test things and, and I, you know, your point, I think your point is right, John, if you've got a lot of these home, you know, automation kind of devices, they, they probably are all 802.11 G devices because that's how a lot of these are built. It's lower power and all of that, but, uh, but segment them off and they're probably all connecting to your time capsule. Anyway, it sounds like you might be using your, uh, first generation extreme in five gigahertz mode. So they wouldn't be connecting to that anyway, which would be the right way to use it. By the way, if you're going to bother to extend, that would probably be the right thing, but still not, not with that device. So yeah, I, I think I, I like your advice. I think it's good. I mean, it, now would it, you, uh, I haven't used the 802.11 AC time capsule or airport extreme and I'll, I'll lump them together because I think they're mm. the same device except one has a hard drive and the other doesn't yeah but would you necessarily would you identify that device as a problem because it advertises again it says technically i can handle up to 50 users which or devices well it could be i mean you know again i'm just going by what he's talking about here it is better to you know wi-fi just because a device can manage a connection to 50 discrete devices simultaneously doesn't mean that it's going to be efficient, right? You, you know, you, you it doesn't will, mean it'll do it well. <laughs> no, it, it won't do it well because that's a lot of devices to have on one access point. I don't care how beastly the access point is. You know, we talked about this in the last show. Um, the, 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 these routers and more specifically, these devices don't support, this multi-user MIMO thing, right? So the router can only deal with one device at a time. Now I know a lot of these aren't talking all the time on the network, but still it's a lot to manage and it can, I, it wouldn't surprise me if that's just causing the router to go belly up and yep, I got to reboot. It's routing tables are probably a mess uh, after time. Wouldn't surprise me. Yeah. 
I like your idea of segmenting them. That's good. Yep. Yeah, and I try to do that. I either try to upgrade my devices to the the highest standard they can, you know. Uh, The only other thought I would have is that if at all possible, if you can get the MAC address of the device, if you can give it, uh, DHCP technically should do what you need and that the device will go to the, you know, your airport and say, give me an address. And it's like, yep, here you go. If if at all possible, it'll take time and it's kind of a pain in the neck. But I, I think in the long run, and I don't do this because I have relatively few devices, but if you can do what we'll call a static DHCP reservation, which is where you go to your access point and say, okay, this MAC address maps to this IP address and always assign the MAC address of this device to this IP address. I think in general, that's a good thing and can reduce some chaos. It, it can. Here's here's the thing, and we're getting really deep here, but but it's important when you have lots of devices like this. You have to be aware, and and with Apple routers, you can't be um, of how much non-volatile RAM they have. Right? These routers store the, the, everything is stored in RAM. Right? The the firmware is in RAM. The settings are in RAM, and then the active just because it's running software. It's got to have RAM, right? And so it's all stored in some type of memory, right? The RAM is going to be different from the flash memory that it's storing it on. But it's, it's, all, it's all stored somewhere. You have to make sure that enough of the flash memory, which we'll call the persistent storage, where the firmware and the settings are stored, you have to make sure that enough of that is carved out for the settings. And then you also have to make sure that there's enough actual RAM for the router to run and kind of hold all these balls in the air. And it's po- so it's possible that the router is simply running out of RAM. I don't know how much it's it's managing there, right? And how it's doing that because you have no vision into that with Apple's uh, routers. And then it's also possible that you don't have enough NVRAM, non-volatile RAM, for the settings carved out. And that's where adding all these DHCP reservations could be a problem. Again, I'm, I'm just I've seen this with other routers where you know if they only allocate say 64k to the non-volatile RAM, well, you know, all your settings are going to start to eat that up and DHCP reservations Mm. eat a huge amount of RAM up for each one because you're putting a MAC address and a name and an IP address in. I mean, that's a lot of bits. And so you just have to be aware of of that. But again, with Apple stuff, you can't be. So it's, it's, you know, as Alex in the chat room said, there's a lot of balls in the air and, and one of those things could be what other Wi-Fi interference is happening, right? You know, and what's the router having to deal with there? What are your neighbors up to? There's a lot going on. We're, I think we're kind of done with this topic in that we have to mm-hmm. draw a line because otherwise we could just talk about it forever <laughs> with, with a, a series of what ifs. Which I wouldn't mind. No, it's fun. That's the problem. Yeah. But I want John to get back to us because yeah. um, I, I think the initial advice will steer him in a direction that will reveal more yeah and and you know alex has a a great suggestion wipe the router and start from scratch do a factory reset on that on that uh main airport extreme and just rebuild it because it could be that you have a corrupt (laughs) setting in there and i know it sucks i hate it when i have to do that but i hate the turn it off turn it on again solution but well but there's a difference between turn it off and turn it on again <laughs> and you know flash the settings and start from the defaults uh because that can make a huge difference I've, I've been through it here i have the router that i'm on now the uh, netgear r8500 
I started having all kinds of problems with it. Now I'm running, you know, weird third-party firmware at the moment and all of that. It was working fine. And then it, it wouldn't stay up for more than a day. And finally I bit the bullet and I flashed it to the factory defaults and rebuilt my whole network. And it took an hour. It really didn't take an hour. It took like a half hour. And it's been, you know, up for like eight days straight. So nice. Yeah. So it mattered. You know, it, this all brings us to a, a topic that I want to kind of float out there. And, and I'm sure it'll get discussed many, many times um, in future shows. We're talking about network extensions, right? And I have been for years a huge fan of things like Powerline and, and Mocha to a, to a point, but things that let you send an Ethernet signal across any existing wires you might have in your walls so that you can do these extensions that way. And along those lines, in parallel to that, I have spent hours and hours and hours poo-pooing the concept of wireless extensions because it just doesn't work. Well, it's time to change that tune, John. What? Yep. Uh, I have, for the last almost week in the house, been running uh, two, not one, but two wireless extensions. My power line in my house was getting me, you know, the 500 megabit per second power line would get me about uh, somewhere between 70 and 100 megabits. Okay. And, you know, with my internet connection doing about 160 megabits per second on the downstream, it always bothered me that I had this bottleneck. And I, I'd said I wanted to get Ethernet in the walls and all that. And I started thinking, you know, I've got this router. The main router in the house is uh, actually it's a tri-band router. So it has two five gigahertz channels and one 2.4. But it, this could all be done with a single five gigahertz and a single, you know, a, du a normal dual band router. And I started thinking, you know. My devices do pretty well connecting 802.11ac to the router. What if I had another router connecting 802.11ac to that router? So I have three dual band routers in the house. One of them is the main router. The others are in bridge mode, essentially. And their 5 gigahertz radios are in client bridge mode. So they're not repeating the 5 gigahertz signal. They're just using it as the backbone. And... Uh, Man, and then and then I have the 2.4 gigahertz radio in uh, in both of those broadcasting a 2.4 signal. It's awesome. With one of my routers, it's uh, it's it's two floors away, but directly underneath the main router. And from that one, I'm able to pass about 350 megabits per second. So that's way faster than Powerline. Not as fast as Gigabit Ethernet, which would be, you know, about 950, 970 is about what I see with Giggy. Uh, the other one is one floor away, but the entire length of the house away. So it's this diagonal thing. It goes through a zillion things to get there. On that one, I'm doing about two, maybe 280, 250 to 280 megabits per second in both directions. Still way faster, many times faster than Powerline. And these connections are rock solid. Uh, you know, I, they, they stay up for literally days. There's no <laughs> resyncing. Uh, it works really, really well. And, uh, you know, 802.11, here's the thing, you know, five gigahertz, it doesn't go through walls well, but it does go through walls. And so you lose some, but when you're starting with a connection that at, in with best case scenario could do, you know, they say 1300. So let's divide that by two. We could do 750 megabits a second. Well, okay, great. My connections are, 
one of them is is at about 28% and the other is at about 50%. Well, that's still pretty darn good. And it works really well. I have no issues with it. I, I did discover one issue. I, uh, you know, I hooked my Apple TV because one of the extensions is, is at the television. And I wanted to be able to get data to my Apple TV quickly across the network, especially like not just over the internet, but from the disc station when we're streaming movies. And so the Apple TV has a, uh, a speed test app, you know, because it's the Apple TV 4. I downloaded the Ookla speed test app. I ran it. And it said it down, the downloads were happening at 100 megabits. I'm like, what the heck? You know, I, I've done all this testing. I know I'm going at like 250 from here. What's going on? The Apple TV's Ethernet port is only a 100 megabit port. Did you know that, John? Yes. The, the, they are, are uh, I have seen many fish shakes in that regard. So and for that, my Apple TV, I just connect it wirelessly. It's got an 802.11 AC radio in it. It'll do, uh, you know, so it's getting about the same connection that my, my access points get. It's just stupid. I got to say, Dave, speaking of Apple TV, and then, then I have a suggestion for a uh, agenda change, perhaps. But sure, dude, I am loving my Apple TV as of late because I have been having disruptions with my local cable provider. And that when I want to record a show, for whatever reason, I either get a blackout or it says cable not available and stuff. And I miss the show and they don't rebroadcast it on my broadcast cable. And so I get ready to shake my fist. Here's the good news. So even on the third gen Apple TV that I have, um, so I'll offer kudos to one network and a fish shake at the other. So some of the shows that I watch are on Fox. Fox has a channel on the Apple TV that lets you, if you're a cable subscriber, watch the content again. Yeah. Um, the, the one that I'll shake my fist at is CBS. CBS has introduced this thing called CBS Now. The thing is you got to sign up for it. I'm like, are you serious to watch the content that I already pay for? And you want me to pay for it again? <laughs> so that, that, that kind of made me unhappy. The good news is that a lot of, uh, a lot of the, uh, and that, that's why I talk about the Apple TV is that I can use airplay from my current MacBook pro to take the show. And a day later I can rebroadcast it to my Apple TV and watch it in pretty much it's full glory in HD and everything. So, um, so I'm liking the Apple TV for when the TiVo or my cable network just doesn't get it right. <laughs> That's good. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We do a lot of um we do a lot of uh, on-demand stuff with Comcast be- for when, you know, we miss a recording for whatever reason. So, yeah. No, that's it it's great. Uh, the Apple TV, it's you know, the whole cord cutter thing, man. It makes it makes a lot of difference. I think. I think. Hey, um I could talk about this all day and maybe we will, but I do want to take a quick break and talk about our sponsors. If that's okay, John. Outstanding. All right. We like to answer questions on this show and our sponsor betterment helps to answer a great one. That being, Hey guys, how should I manage my money? You know, there's a lot of answers to that question, but a lot of times they involve dealing with people in sort of uncomfortable ways. We all like computers, right? So the answer is to go to betterment.com slash MGG and start there. It's going to ask you some very simple questions, what your goals are, what your income is, things that might be embarrassing to talk about 
with fellow humans, at least as you're getting started here. And you have to get started. We all have to get started. Doesn't matter how old you are. You've got to make sure that you're taking care of yourself down the road. So go to betterment.com slash MGG. They're an investment advisor, online investment advisor. In fact, they were the first. They're the largest, they're the fastest growing, and it's automated. But they do have humans. You can call them seven days a week if you want to get any help or assistance. It's lower cost than other financial services. In fact, it's the least expensive with the lowest fees of any automated investing service. And it's super easy to use. It's never too late to get started. Now's the time, right? It's certainly better to do it now than it is to wait six months. And speaking of six months, depending on how much you invest, you can get actually up to six months free from Betterment. But you got to go to our special link. That's betterment.com slash MGG. Start there. Check it out. See how it's going to work for you. And then roll forward to your financial future. Betterment.com slash MGG. Our thanks to Betterment for sponsoring this episode. If you're like me, you've got extra stuff laying around. And you're going to want some extra cash to kick in for the last sponsor. So Gazelle at Gazelle.com is the place to turn your extra stuff into cash. They make it super easy. You go to Gazelle.com. That's it. Well, it's not quite it. You got to do a little more than that. You got to tell them what you have. And then that's pretty much it. Well, you got to give them your address. And then I promise that's it. They'll send you a box. Doesn't cost you anything. You just have to wait. Did you wait long enough? Then the box shows up and you really don't have to wait that long. You put your stuff in the box. You send it to them. You wait a little bit longer. You get an email. Hey, we got your stuff. Here's your money. That's it. That's truly it. That's what happens. Oh, unless, unless what they get in the box is not quite what you described. You might think this is going in one direction, but I promised you it's going in another. I've had this happen to me where what I sent them in the box wasn't quite what I described. See, when you go rewind back and you go to the part where I say, you tell them what you got, they ask you what condition it's in. And it's, they're not nuts about it. In fact, they actually give you some guidelines, but it's like, you know, bad, good, great. That's essentially it. Well, I said something was good once. And I sent it to them. They gave me a price. I thought, yeah, okay, good. I'm happy. They got it. It wasn't what I described. They said it was great. They offered me more money, but they didn't send it to me right away. They wanted me to confirm that I'm okay with them giving me more money. They're nice people like that. So you know what I did? I didn't want to be, I didn't want to gum up the works. I said, yes. So I took extra money and that was it. It shows up. You can get it sent to you via PayPal. You can get it sent to you via check if you want. And if you want an extra 5%, you get it sent to you as an Amazon gift card. It's pretty awesome. You got to check it out. Gazelle.com. As you're checking out, they'll ask where you heard from them. Say, Matt Geekab. Our thanks to Gazelle for sponsoring this episode. And with that, John, I think we should move on to a different topic. I want to go to Jeff. He has a very, very weird problem, um, but it, it, in a general sense, it's not weird. But, uh, but there's a lesson in here, and it's actually a very cool lesson. So Jeff writes, it's a simple one here regarding calendar. 
for some reason, whenever I open calendar, it comes up in the window is elongated and short. I assume the solution would be similar to what you've described recently with finder resizing, but nothing I've done seems to help it to get it to help get it to open differently. Is there a trick I'm missing? So when calendar is operating the way it's built to operate, you launch calendar, you move and or resize the window and you quit calendar. The next time you launch it, the window goes to where you left it. But there's a preference file that's involved in this, and it's possible something has happened to your preference file, Jeff. So that preference file, it actually, it goes through a container and it links around and points, but really that preference file is where it always has been. And when I say where it always has been, I mean that its name betrays calendar's roots because the name is in your home folder, in the library folder, in preferences, a file named com.apple.ical.plist. Because, of course, Calendar used to be called iCal, and it inherited a lot of that stuff, including the bundle name, which then gives it that preference name. If you want to, and, and, and Jeff can and, and actually did, we heard back from Jeff, just blow away this, quit Calendar, blow away the preference file, relaunch it, and then things are going to be fine. So you probably had a corrupted calendar, uh, plist file. But if you want to dig in a little deeper, this is where things get interesting. You can open this file, and I recommend opening it in either BB Edit. Or BB Edit's free alternative cousin, uh, brother, little brother, I don't know, whatever you want to call it. It's called Text Wrangler. Um, it's like BB Edit Lite, but it'll work for this kind of stuff. So, um, but either one, open it up in BB Edit and just watch the file. BB Edit's cool because it will show you changes to the file that happen live outside of BB Edit. So as you're moving this window around, you will see a section of this file change. And the section, everything in here, it's a plist, so it's in this kind of key string section. Go down to look for the key that says NS window frame iCal. And there's a bunch of numbers there, and there's a bunch of pairs of numbers uh, in the string. The first pair is, is the uh, location of the upper left corner, and then the second pair is the size of the window. So as you resize the window, you'll see these things move live. Uh, if they don't move live, and it might be that you have a permissions issue with this file, or if BB Edit or Text Wrangler won't open up the file, well, then maybe you have a problem uh, with the file all by itself. But the act of simply opening it in BB Edit or Text Wrangler might be enough to then resave it and fix that file. But it's pretty cool to be able to see BB Edit reflect live changes on the fly as you're doing this stuff. So, uh, so you got to check it out. But, uh, but yeah, delete that file. It usually doesn't. And that was, uh, you know, I said it was listener Jeff that uh, that offered this question to us. I, I'm, I'm trying to be better about this. It was premium listener Jeff. So thank you, Jeff, for being a, uh, a premium subscriber. Any thoughts on this, John? My one thought, which is somewhat of a tangent, but it's relevant. So settle down. But um, <laughs> no, actually, our friend, uh, uh, one of our good friends, uh, uh, Peter Cohen, um, had an issue with some runaway processes, and I was looking. So he he identified two processes that apparently were consuming 100% or so on a core, which is bad. How do you tell? So number one, if you use either Activity Monitor or what we like is the very nice iStat Menus program, um, you can see if if things are if something is taking up too much processor. Um, 
Sometimes you can tell if this is happening if you hear your fans spinning up for no apparent reason. But if you go to Activity Monitor, uh, which you can through iStat Menus or just run it yourself, you can then see all of your processes. Here's the fun part. You can double-click on a process, and it'll typically give you a couple of uh, interesting things to do after that. And one of them is open files and ports. And so he had an issue with two processes. It was like blah, blah, D and blah, blah, D. They were actually referring to, a lot of them were linking to something called address book, blah, blah, blah. Well, the reason I mentioned this and why I think it's relevant, Dave, and then we'll move on, is that it's no longer called address book. It's called contacts. So I think the general advice to people is that you may see something that is named one name in the latest OS 10 UI, but it's named something else in the bowels of OS 10 because Apple just doesn't want to change it because there's a lot of legacy or existing code that relies on the old naming. And with some of the problems they've had as of late, changing the naming to be accurate to what the UI shows is uh, probably not high on their list of things to do right now. <laughs> Right. Yeah, I'm with you. Yeah, yeah. Well, so, it, it 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 address book equals contacts and calendar equals iCal. And that's right. And there's probably a couple of others. Uh, and maybe there's a list. You know, what? maybe maybe somebody has a list of. of I wonder if I. You know, I haven't looked, but I don't think photos equals iPhoto. I think those are two separate bundle IDs. They may have because it's different enough. Because yeah. we had Aperture and and iPhoto, I, I would right. say it's different enough that you're you're not. Yeah, and I don't think based on its behavior, they're relying on legacy code like they. Right. That's yeah. That's right. Yeah. 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 But even now, I mean, you know, we, we, we've seen. I still think there are leftovers. I mean, now it's called iCloud, but it used to be called Dot Mac. It used to be called uh, all, all sorts of things. I, I Sync, Mobile Me, pick a name. Right. And, and if you, again, if you dig in, in, in the lowest levels of, of the OS, you may find the old naming convention. You know, but at least one thing has been consistent, whether it's, you know, iSync or MobileMe or .Mac <laughs> or iCloud, the, the one thing has been consistent, and that is that it sucks for third-party app syncing. There, yeah, I, 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 cl I clarify that because things like CalDAV, you know, the, the calendar server works awesome. The contact server works mostly awesome. Uh, syncing for like third-party app data sucks. It's just terrible, and it's I, really hard to do. Uh, but you know, if and Dave, yeah. I feel for you. So the other day, I was on my Mac, and all of a sudden, it was syncing with an, a, a Wi-Fi base station that I didn't want it to choose as my preferred. Oh, yeah, yeah that's not even third-party app data. That's Apple's no. own app data. That's right. Right. Oh, and so God. this reminded me of your Logan. Logan Wi-Fi, man. Nine characters, sudden, the bane of my existence. So all of a sudden it connected to optimum Wi-Fi instead of my base station. And I'm like, why are you doing that? I, I didn't tell you to do that. And then I looked in my list of preferred networks. There it is. So I went to system preferences, um, network. And if you're connected to Wi-Fi, you can then go to advanced and under the Wi-Fi tab, you will see preferred networks. It was populated with base stations that I haven't talked to in some of them in years. Yep. And like I said, it was connecting to one that I did not indicate was my preferred network. Somehow, I don't know if it was my iPhone or my iPad. I suspect my iPhone, but somehow 
and, and none of them, because the thing is, I actually, you know, was trying to manipulate this data and something. And it's like, well, yeah, that's part of, uh, that's part of iCloud Keychain. And the thing is, I don't use iCloud Keychain. So I don't even know how this happened because I do not use iCloud Keychain, which I understand maybe one of its uh, benefits is it will sync these Wi-Fi access points. I don't even have that enabled, Dave. So I don't even know how this happened. But all of a sudden, I had a dirty list of ancient access point so i i feel your pain my brother good news i'm checking here on this computer which you know this is just to be clear (laughs) this is a 27 inch imac that has um it's well it's left i had to bring it to the you know manchester mall a couple of years ago because the 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 power supply and the graphics card and all that died but for the most part it hasn't it has been in this building either the office below or the studio above here since its birth uh, it has a Logan Wi-Fi in its preferred networks, which I know I've removed. Uh, I was looking here. Really, I didn't expect to find Logan Wi-Fi. I was looking to find a network that I removed from my list yesterday. The one at the rink where my son practices because it's at it's at Phillips Exeter School, which is, um, you know, it's a private high school, but they have a guest network. But you have to agree every time. And I have enough bandwidth on my uh, data plan that I don't want to have to agree. So I just, you know, use my data to like check my email and surf the web or check Facebook while I'm waiting for them. I don't see that one here yet, but you know, I'm doing a podcast, so I'm not really paying attention as I'm scrolling through these. So yeah, no, nah, it's Logan, good. Logan, Logan will, it will come back. I'm going to delete it again right now. In fact, I'm, I'm not going to wait till I get to the top of the list. I deleted it. Okay. It says remove, and here's the funny thing. I have like eight of them selected that I want to delete. It says remove Wi-Fi network Logan Wi-Fi. I'm saving this uh, to my my Dropbox for screenshots. Your Mac and other Wi-Fi devices using iCloud Keychain, using iCloud Keychain, so mark that down. Yep. Uh, will no longer join this Wi-Fi network. If only we could believe that that might have a snowball's chance of being true. Uh, but they lie as we've yep. talked. So I they hit because the remove button. But dude, the thing is, gone. you use iCloud Keychain. I don't on any of my devices. Mm-hmm. I don't use iCloud Keychain. It mm-hmm. is explicitly not selected. So why is this happening to me? Maybe it's because I know you. I don't know. It's yeah, yeah. I'll take the I'll take the the hit for this one, folks. It's <laughs> it's evidently you heard it from John. It's my fault. It's my fault. Yeah. So the one that I removed the other day, <laughs> yesterday, doesn't appear to be here. This PEA guest or whatever it's called. So we'll see. Are we still connected here, John? I stupidly just hit apply in network system preference pane. I, I still hear you. Oh, that is good news. All right. Sandy, premium listener Sandy asks, uh, Comcast just sent me an email stating that my present Eris cable modem model WBM760A Uh, that I rent from Comcast is out of date and I need to get their wireless gateway right now. I have their modem hooked up to the Comcast wire and then hooked up to an older airport extreme base station. I don't really want anything to do with Comcast's own wireless in my home. I'm happy with my Apple wireless. Will these work together happily without me having to be an it expert? I'm pretty much a novice when it comes to networking. So Here's a um, model. What model was that? Oh, I'm yeah. trying to bring up the page on mine because I have an Eris. Sure. Yeah. So it's the WBM 760A. But here it, it, I've, I did some research on this and that modem is what we call a four by four modem, uh, meaning that it has four channels 
in each direction of one of down four downstream and four upstream with Doxis three. And we'll put a link in the show notes to how to calculate this um, with Doxis three. You get in the U S you get an effective bandwidth, actual data that is usable to the customer of 38 megabits per second down and 27 megabits per second up per channel. Okay. So that means that your modem can do a maximum of 152 down and 108 up with four by four. I don't know what level Comcast service you have, uh, but it's possible that you have Comcast service now that goes faster than that. And that's what, um, that's probably what Comcast is telling you is, Hey, look, this cable modem you have isn't fast enough for the service that you have. I also found a uh, chart that uh, Comcast doesn't publish this, of course, but DSL reports does. I posted an article on TMO about it this week, but we'll put, uh, we'll put the chart in the show notes as well. That tells you what your Comcast plan, it, it, it references the name of all the plans, the names of all the plans that Comcast has uh, and what Comcast promises you the bandwidth to be for those. And then also what the actual provision bandwidth of the modem is, because what they do is they tell the cable modem when it syncs up, they say, okay, this person has say, for example, blast one Oh five service or blast one fifty. actually is probably what you have, which is why they're emailing you um, blast one fifty service. Comcast says you get 150 megabits per second down and 10 megabits per second up. This is the service that I have, but the cable modem is actually provisioned to 187.5 megabits down and 12.5 up. That way they can be sure to be giving it's, it's the whole Scotty principle, right? It's under promise over deliver. So, uh, so you probably have blast 150 and they've, these services have been, uh, you know, they kind of auto upgrade you as, as, as the services themselves just get upgraded. You don't typically don't pay anymore when they auto upgrade you, you just get faster service. And Comcast has been great about it. I mean, I started, with Comcast, I think we were at, you know, 12 and a half down and two and a half up or something 10 years ago. And now I'm at, you know, 187 down and 12 up. And I really do get that. I get, I definitely get the 12 and a half up. I, um, I get about 175 down, uh, when I, when I do my tests. So that's, it's pretty darn good. So anyway, we'll put these things in there. So that's probably what they want. Now, here's the thing. Uh, Comcast wants you to have their wireless gateway, and it might not be a bad thing for you, or it might be, you know, it's probably going to have better wireless than your older airport uh, extreme base station that we were talking about previously. I don't think yours is quite as old as the first gen one that, that we were mentioning in, in the prior question, but, um, but it might be better. But if not, if you're happy with what you have, Comcast can rent you a, what I'll call a dumb cable modem, one that doesn't have a router in it, one that doesn't have any of this other stuff in it. Uh, they will rent you one or you can buy one. Uh, just make sure you get one that for you is at least eight by four so that you have eight streams down and that way you can get enough. You have, you know, more streams than your bandwidth would require. That's all. So any thoughts on this, John? You may ask yourself, how do I know the capabilities of my modem? 
Now, you could get the model number, which in my case, Dave, I, I asked you the model because I have an Eris as well. Now, in my case, Optimum Online, which is my local uh, uh, oligarchy, yeah. if you will. <laughs> yeah. Cable oligarchy. And then it's my only choice. It's your only cable. choice. That's right. Yeah. Uh, I wouldn't call it monopoly. So that's why I'm, I'm being a wise guy and saying oligarchy. Because typically in many areas, you got one choice for cable and that's it. But I'm pretty happy with them. But they include the modem, uh, allegedly free. But the thing is, I get it from them, and I do not pay a fee on my bill for the modem. Sure. I basically go to them, and they're, they're like, yep, as long as you got cable service, we'll, we'll give it to you. So I have the model TM822G. Now, how do I know that? Now, I could either look on the modem itself, or uh, for people that want to get some detailed information about their modem, they're typically... Most cable modems will respond to this Doxis IP address, which is so. If you go into your web browser, whatever you use, and you enter HTTP or HTTPS colon slash slash one nine two dot one six eight dot one hundred dot one, you'll probably get a status page telling you something about it. And the thing is, in my case, Dave, um, that's why I was asking. In my case, Dave, if I look on the main status page, it shows me that I have not one, not two, not three, but eight downstream channels and three upstream. So I'm, I think I'm pretty good because my level of service is that I'm not going to saturate the uh, downstream or the upstream, as far as I know, based on what you told me about how much each channel handles. Yeah. So we're good, but, the, but that's a way for those that are technically curious how to ask your modem, what can you do? And it told me. I think my service is 25 down and 5 up. So uh, t- between 25 and 30, they've, they've tweaked it a little bit. I, sure. I get more than they say I should, which... Yeah, that's and that's how it typically... Yeah, that's how it works. That's right. Um, every now and then. Brian so, Monroe uh, in the chat room, who does a lot of this type of stuff, he's a, uh, 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 a consultant, I would call him. He goes around and helps folks uh, deal with this. His first recommendation was the Aris now, which owns the surfboard brand of modems, the Aris surfboard 6141, which is an eight by four modem. And he says that would be a perfect choice for, uh, for this listener. So for Sandy. So thank you, Brian. Thanks for everybody. Yeah. It's good stuff. And yeah, you know, I, I rent my modem from Comcast and I, I do it. Because, well, there were two reasons. Number one, it's nice to be able to just call them and have them immediately come out and replace it. But it does cost me more. You know, I think it's like an $8 a month charge or something. But I have two cable modems at the moment. They're both from Comcast. One is solely for the voice service that we get from Comcast. And one is solely for the data service. And so if I were to not rent from them, I think I would have to buy two cable modems to do it the way that I want to do it. And have things come into the house the way that I want them to come into the house and all of that. So it's part of it is it's simply a problem that I it's a it's a it's a swarm of bees that I don't want to disrupt at the moment. But someday I might dig into that and like try and figure out if if it actually works out better for me. So, but for most folks, yeah. it, it does make sense to own your own cable modem unless you're like John and, and the company just provides it for no additional charge. And you might as well have theirs. You know, in my case, I do. I should research this, though yeah. it's been going on for years. So I have the TiVo, and I have two cable cards. Yeah, actually, I think Cablevision nails me. I think four bucks a month for the two cable cards, and it's oh, because you have the older years. TiVo that doesn't work with the M card. 
Oh no no, they're S cards. But no, the thing is, that's what I'm saying. But if, if you had an M card, are, well, the thing is, I I asked them this because I I was considering upgrading to a newer unit, and I asked the Cablevision rep. I'm like, do you can you give me an M card? No, uh, what I'm saying is that. Well, I think what you're saying is that I could buy my own M card or no. S card. No, no. What I'm saying is it, it, you're using a TiVo that doesn't support an M card. So you have Correct. to have two versus if you Correct. had an M card, you the would TiVo only need series one. three. That's right. Uh, only supports two S cards, the newer ones. Right. So S card is a single stream card. As far as I know, that's what it means. Yes, and then that's right. Uh, they evolve that to an M card. And if I got a newer TiVo and I asked them and they're like, yeah, well, we'll rent you an M card as well. And maybe sure. that will cost me a little less. I mean, it's still, I mean, you know, it's not the end of the world. It's four bucks a month out of my pocket, but right. still it's like, right. And I wish I could buy my own and maybe I technically could and then call them and bond it. You know, I mean, it has IP addresses or Mac addresses or whatever. Sure. But I have to look into that. But you know, it's a, no, it's fine. And and I can do most things. I think you and I talked about this. I can do most things. I can't do on demand and stuff because the cable companies are just kind of jerks and that they want you to get their box versus a cable card. Well, that that's don't say the cable companies. I mean, maybe that's true of your cable company. I am perf- oh, okay. perfectly capable of doing on demand on our TiVos here with uh, oh. with Comcast. Right. So maybe it's not possible with my because I have both S cards and a tuning adapter, and maybe that's just. Maybe I just have a TiVo that's too old. So maybe if I got a slightly newer TiVo, maybe I wouldn't be as limited. You should ask your cable company. We never needed to have a, a tuning adapter with any of our TiVos here. It, well, it could a tuning just, adapter it, is a result of the, uh, I think that's a Band-Aid on the S cards, maybe. Uh, you're, uh, you're asking the wrong guy. I don't know. That's, uh, you might be right. It's worth calling your cable company before you, you know, just to make sure that, that you know, whatever you're doing lets you do, lets you have the capabilities that, you think it would. So, yeah. Yeah, I'd like to go to a, a reefer Bromeo at some point. But, um, yeah, know, or, to, hey. or to a, a, a bolt if, as you head down that path. Well, I don't want to get too new. I mean, come on. <laughs> I'm just a retro type of guy, Dave. I know, you but, know you know, the, the bolt is and like gonna, a new I'm platform. Gonna use, you don't, I'm going to use wanna... my Series 3 until it bursts into flames. I, listen, my Series 3 is still operating today. Oh, you're still using it. Okay. Yeah, but here's the thing. Cool. You know, I got this new Bolt, and what I'm thinking of doing is selling... I have my my Premiere 2-channel, or 2-tuner Premiere, and mm. I have my 2-tuner Series 3, and I have a 2-tuner... I believe it's a 2-tuner. might be a 4. No, it's a 2-tuner. HD. TiVo HD. So, mm. And they all have lifetime service on them, which has some value. So what I'm thinking of doing is selling all of those, all three of those, because I'd only need two other TVs live and buying TiVo minis, which don't need service ever, right? Mm. Because you only get service now for one TiVo and then you stream in your house, either live TV or recorded shows from your main TiVo, in this case, the Bolt for me, uh, but you could do it with a Romeo to the other devices. So as long as I can, and those those uh, TiVo minis, I think are about 150 bucks. So as long as I can sell these other three things for $300 or more, seems like that's maybe the right di- the right direction to go. That's what I've been thinking. I'm with you. But you yeah. know what else I'm thinking, Dave? What's that? I think there are people listening and they're scratching their heads or shaking their fist or wagging their finger. And they're like, how can we get in touch with John and Dave to tell us to, to tell them what we think 
or to ask questions or offer tips or whatever. And, and Dave, it all boils down to you want to send an email to feedback at MacGeekab.com. I think you said feedback at MacGeekab.com. Until I freeze from the terrible cold, I'm going to agree with you in that it's feedback at MacGeekab.com. Two zero six 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 geek is the phone number that you can call if you're really really cold, and uh, anybody can call that. John, what's that phone number? What's geek? Uh, four three three five. That's right. And if you are a premium subscriber, premium at macgeekab.com is the email address that we prioritize just for you. So please feel free to use that. Come visit us on Twitter. John, why don't you tell them how to find us on Twitter? Twitter. There's so many options. But Twitter, as far as I could tell, they haven't totally destroyed the timeline, though there was talk about that. No, they're, they're introducing a some wacky feature. But Anyways, Twitter. I am John F. Braun. He is Dave Hamilton. That other guy is Pilot Pete. The podcast is Mac Geekab, and the publication is Mac Observer, all at twitter.com slash... I like that all at twitter.com slash. That's good. I'd like to thank Cashfly hosting at cashfly.com, C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com for providing all the bandwidth that it takes to get the show from us to you. Of course, our sponsors, Betterment, B-E-T-T-E-R-M-E-N-T.com slash M-G-G for your automated investment service. Gazelle at gazelle.com. Where you can sell off all your old stuff. Carbon Copy Cloner from Bombic.com slash MGG, where you can get 10% off. Squarespace at Squarespace.com slash MGG, where coupon code MGG gets you 10% off. Barebones Software at Barebones.com, the makers of BB Edit, which we talked about in the show here. Amazing at Amazing.com. Coupon code MGG saves you 20%. Smile at SmileSoftware.com slash Geek, where you can always learn about whatever it is they have for you through us and Casper at Casper.com slash MGG. Save 50 bucks on a mattress. A killer mattress, in fact. I hope you have a great weekend doing this on Friday. We get to say that. We will see you next weekend. And between now and then, I want to make sure that you have fun, that you learned something, at least three things on this show and maybe some things during the week. Make sure to send in the stuff that you do like and don't get caught. Made up.